0: Uh It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Although COVID-19's impact on the global economy is still unfolding, what is clear is that the poor, and especially low-income women in developing countries, are among those most adversely affected, which could have massive implications for the global economy. Even prior to the crisis, experts estimated that empowering women to participate more fully in the global economy could add $28 trillion to the world's GDP. And at a time when growth has been cut in half in many parts of the world financial inclusion is looking as much like a macroeconomic imperative as an ethical choice. And few people are seeing this on the ground more clearly than Mary Ellen Iskandarian. Now, Mary Ellen is a leading figure in the multi-billion dollar microfinance sector and is the CEO of Women's World Banking, which has built a network of dozens of financial services providers across the world all in an effort to deliver sophisticated financial assistance to women in the forms of small microloans that are then packaged up and sold in global capital markets. So I've invited her onto the show to explain how some of the least among us are getting financed, building businesses, and leveraging technology to support their families, communities, and the global economy. Mary Ellen, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: Chris, thank you so much for having me.
0: You all over at Women's World Banking are really at the forefront of democratizing capital all around the world, and you've leveraged an impressive array of institutions to get this done. Uh, To set the stage, then let's maybe kick off uh, with a little bit about Women's World Banking. Who are the members of your particular fintech ecosystem? Are they specialist in microfinance firms? Banks or other kinds of financial institutions.
1: Sure, um, and, and I think actually the the history of Women's World Banking sort of traces that growth very nicely. Uh, we celebrated our 40th anniversary last year. Uh, since we were created, we have always been dedicated to providing access to financial services to low income women in developing countries. And I'd say you know maybe the first 25 years of our um, of our organization, we were really a, sort of a membership organization for some of the leading microfinance institutions around the world. But then in the last, say, 10 to 15 Years as so many more financial service providers, technology operators, fast-moving consumer goods companies, and with the the increase in digital technology, increasingly more mainstream banks and insurance companies really started to see the low-income market as you know the really potentially very um, exciting market segment that it that it always has been but that it may have been too expensive or at least they thought it was too expensive for them to reach so i'd say in that that 15 years or so our our partners are the the players that we're working with are much more diverse than the traditional microfinance institutions, although as I say, we're still trying to serve that that low-income population. And I'll just finish saying by saying, um, as you noted in the intro, um, today we are working closely with 49 partner financial service providers and through them serve 64 million low-income women.
0: That really is remarkable, not just the, the breadth of clients, but also seeing Uh, the the broad array of institutions attracted to the low-income sector. Um, Now, microfinance may seem a bit esoteric for uh, some fintech watchers, even though it's a technology-driven sector that's larger than the global cryptocurrency market. Uh, So maybe you can provide folks with a bit of a primer on what microfinance is. Um, I mean, what does a typical microfinance deal look like? And how does it depart from more conventional forms of lending and, for that matter, banking?
1: Hmm, that's a great question and I and I think there's there's we can talk a little bit about sort of the traditional model and then maybe talk about how um those have been more, you know, technology savvy in the way they've um adapted their model. But sort of the traditional model that, you know, Muhammad Yunus was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for is a very high touch model both in terms of the year engagement. It's usually a group of women who come together. Um, they each borrow an amount that um, is no more than the, the, the least able in the group can, can repay. Um, in some places, uh, you know, it used to be the case in Bangladesh. It still is the case in India. Each woman would then be jointly and severally liable for the repayments of the other members of the group. So there was a really that deep, Peer dependency, and it was a, a very effective internal, you know, risk manager. You know, if the the group really didn't think you could repay, then you wouldn't stay in the group very long. Um, and then the microfinance institution has a loan officer who comes to that group meeting, makes traditionally cash disbursements, cash collections. There's Typically, some financial education that gets mixed in there. So very high touch. Um, All of that also is, as you might imagine, very high interest rate because that's a costly model that I've just described. And there are an awful lot of uh, MFIs that are still using that um, that methodology. And those are the ones that, frankly, were the most concerned about in this crisis because of you know you can imagine all of the there's. Not very much social distancing going on in those groups and the, the use of cash and the, the, the high touch element to that really does not lend itself, unfortunately, to this current crisis environment that we're in.
0: Is there any kind of conceptual overlap then between the low touch or low contact models and the services they provide?
1: More microfinance institutions, but also other types of lenders who are working in this space, have put some of that onto digital platforms or through digital means. Even even if it's just, you know, in the case of a bank that we work with, it's actually one of our investees in Colombia. They had a lot of success when they made their disbursements of loans. They put them into a you know a savings account essentially, and so the woman would be able to withdraw the um, the loan. But we found that they'd either keep some of the loan in the savings account or keep that savings account open and were then building up savings um, against it. And and I think that's actually a very important lesson for some of these businesses um, that we've learned from the last crisis, where we saw, again, a really clear divide between those more traditional MFIs, which were only lending, versus those that had gone through the formal licensing process through, you know, the bank regulator or banking supervision uh, body in the country and gotten full deposit-taking licenses. And you saw a real gap in the 2008-2009 crisis of those institutions that were able to fund themselves through deposits so they didn't have... um, the you know the urgency of getting external liquidity and their clients frankly had access to a safe place to save and so those clients were in better repayment shape we saw some data in again a different different organization in colombia but also in colombia that we saw portfolio quality in those institutions where the women had either a bank account or a health insurance policy were at least 300 basis points better than those who didn't. Because when you're not giving a poor household the choice, you know, take your kid to the doctor or pay your bank loan, um, you're much more likely to be able to manage that risk and she's going to be much more likely to repay that loan.
0: You had mentioned that some microfinance institutions evolved regulatorily as well, taking on bank charters and the like. D- did that have an impact on technology adoption as well? Or did you see a reluctance to go digital once firms became more formal operators in their respective financial systems?
1: You know, that's that's a great question. And I think it, it probably speaks to to some degree, to a level of sophistication and 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 frankly, an awareness of cost, because what we did start to see, and it and frankly, it had it had some really significant gender impacts. But as more institutions made the decision to become regulated deposit taking financial institutions and were bringing in external shareholders, that you know, very, very high interest rate loan that they were making, they got much, much more concerned about being able to lower interest rates, lower transaction costs. And obviously, if you're looking to lower transaction costs, looking at that, the digital piece is a huge uh, opportunity there. You also saw in, in many markets, you know, banks kind of making the same calculation and going, you know, so to speak, down market. So seeing that there was a client base that they could serve once that they had set up their own digital platforms. You know, I have a uh, we have a very uh, wonderful uh, bank in Nigeria that's part of our um, part of our network, and and they said you know the the two client segments that they probably served most efficiently. Digitally, first, were their very high end clients and then their very low income clients because there was a, a service efficiency issue at the high end and then a real transaction cost concern uh, at the low end.
0: Obviously, your work has focused on women. As you mentioned earlier, Mohamed Yanis, the Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, had recognized that women were really good credit risk, that they tended to not only repay their loans but to also even save and to accumulate money. Uh, What role does fintech play then in gender equity and access, um, especially in a COVID-19 world where you see so many people facing such dire economic conditions?
1: So I, you know, I'm sitting right now, still very much in the place of, you know, let's not let this great crisis go to waste, kind of thing. Um, and don't mean to make light in any way of the the real pressure and the particular pressure that's that's falling on on women. But I, on the whole, see the digital opportunity that the the crisis provides as as. Very much in the short, medium, and long term, very, very good for women. Having said that, we got to get right out into the open. That there does remain there does remain a real technology gap. Now, you know the good news and the headline is that there is only an eight percent gender gap between um, men and women in terms of phone ownership. But when you scratch that surface a little bit, those are still the feature phones, the very very you know sort of rudimentary early phones, and that gap goes to on average 20% when you're talking about um, smartphones, it's as high as 51% in India. So the access to the technology and the right technology to to benefit as broadly as digital financial services um, can benefit low-income people is, is very real. And I, I always feel it's so important to Remind people that ownership of a phone is unfortunately not yet one that can be taken for granted. But once we get the phone in her hand, has a you know women do tend to be less digitally confident, and so they do need you know a little digital literacy. But once they are onboarded, they use the products and services at very much the same rates and the same volumes, same products. So. That Like there's not a need to create a, you know, specialized pink woman's digital product.
0: This is really interesting. And uh, I guess brings up the question as well as to what access to a phone really means. I mean, what's required when one talks about access? Uh, To what degree does it make a difference as to whether or not, you know, there are multiple phones in a household with one That a wife or mother can access independently on her own versus, say, a situation where there's only one family phone and someone has to access that mobile device by relying on her husband or brother or a male figure. What exactly does that mean from the standpoint of financial inclusion?
1: The intra household dynamics are so critical. And so it's such an important question you're asking. We've seen. Pretty conclusively, across the board, you know, very, very traditional cultures, very progressive cultures, if a woman is sharing a phone, she'll use that phone for health information. she'll certainly use that phone to make phone calls, she'll get uh, you know weather information, particularly in a in a rural setting, but she is not going to use that phone for financial services, and she's really not going to use that phone for savings. We see, you know, a real, real premium, a real demand for confidentiality around savings in the intra household uh, question. women really want to maintain the control over how long money gets saved for, what it gets saved towards, and with a shared phone, there's really no no guarantee of that. in several countries, you know sort of more traditionally, uh, traditional countries, in terms of cultural and social norms, you know, um, a male household member may go and get a bunch of SIM cards in you know his name that he then can dole out to different people in the family. So it's often including the women. So it's often difficult to actually trace who's using a phone. But where we know that you know it is the woman's phone or she's sharing a phone, she's going to be very reluctant. To financially transact on something that's not entirely in her name,
0: and, and I and I suppose that when you have then or you throw COVID on top of that, that means she can't necessarily go to her friend's house either, whom she may either either trust or have a relationship with, and so it makes her more reliant on on having her own mobile device. So, in, in, against that backdrop, you know, what then do you see? as Either a policy imperative or or a market imperative, in order to enable fintech to enable women.
1: Well, that's where part of the you know the opportunity of the crisis I, I think really gets exciting. You have. 159, and it almost feels like, you know, there's another country every day, but 159 countries have made either brand new benefits transfer programs or are adapting existing conditional cash transfer programs or other welfare programs, um, adapting them to the COVID crisis. And a very large percentage of those programs are insisting that the payment be made only to women. And so it's turning into a very interesting power dynamic, even in, in households, where you're seeing women getting SIM cards, women getting access to phones in the crisis in order to access digitally those government transfers. You've also seen, I think this has been really a, a fascinating development as well. You know, FATF itself has made some really interesting. Um, easing of certain KYC restrictions in the service of getting more people financially included opening accounts so that there is some place for them to receive um, a a digital payment. And so you've seen a lot of really interesting remote account opening, remote eKYC. You've seen a lot of interesting um, technology come into play and, and just this rush towards financial inclusion that we've never seen before, which is very exciting.
0: Wow, that is fascinating. That basically this idea of know your customer, anti-money laundering provisions, that the international community is not just uh, focused on making sure that you can keep bad actors out of the financial system, but, but really understanding that once there's this move to digital, you have to facilitate onboarding and you have to make it easier for people to become digital actors. And that's going to then be a real benefit then, uh, you're saying, for, for women who have not always had easy access to financial services. But then a digital interface can help to make this possible if they have the right hardware, the right mobile phones uh, and the like, uh, quite literally at their fingertips
1: the mobile phone and the account itself and then even almost more importantly or certainly as importantly and again no one really anticipated that this would be such an issue they have to know, they, they have to be aware that the account exists what the account can do you know we're working with one of the really the second largest public sector bank in India and you know, as of last week, only 42% of the government benefit transfers that had been made expressly to women had been withdrawn. And the number one reason, as we've been working with this bank to facilitate um, with withdrawals, was that the women did not even know that the deposits had been made or that they were eligible for them.
0: I think it's worth ending on a note of... You know what kinds of opportunities are there outside of even sort of the mobile lending sector? I, I read just this morning that WeChat is developing a new credit rating model based off of the habits of some of its users. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about alternative data. Um, there's a lot of talk about big data in terms of getting more information that can be used to target good investments, um, as well as uh, sound borrowers. Are there any particular technologies that you are finding to be interesting for the world of microfinance and and that you think could be playing a really significant role in the next uh, couple of years, especially as uh, microfinancial institutions are trying to navigate not only COVID, but also the the post-COVID environment?
1: Well, I think um, certainly the the data-related technology that you um, alluded to has been very, very friendly and and helpful to women. You know, there, I think, are something like 50 countries in the world that still don't have any credit bureaus. There's no credit sharing platform at all. And then there's like another 35 or 40 that um, don't cover anything more than 5% of the total adult population. And so they're really not collecting relevant information from, certainly from our client base, the low-income women, but even the majority of women, um, particularly if they haven't borrowed before, so they don't take, you know, retail information or utility payment information. So I think any of this alternative data technology has already proven to be very, very good um, for women. You know, we've got some cases of some of the pays you go, um, solar businesses um that have have sprung up and then that's creating sort of little credit scores for many of the users and you know comes as no surprise to us but you know women are very good repayers and some of these organizations now are really looking at well what else could we lend them now that we have we have this credit information and it's always so inter- interesting that um the men in their portfolio want to borrow for televisions, and the women want to buy, borrow for education loans and agricultural inputs. those are the the two that they most frequently ask for so you know what women borrow for versus men is always a, a very interesting uh, uh, very interesting differential so I think definitely on the data I, the one question around data that I always think is so important to to raise though is the need for gender disaggregating data, you know, most of the mobile network operators around the world do not, even collect you know all you check the box and all uh, all data is assumed to be male everybody's assumed to be born on january 1st you know they they really haven't in the race to to build subscribers they really have not drilled very far down in terms of you know much differentiated data about about people so we do feel like the opportunity for women, when they are identified as such in the, in the data and some, the differentiator in terms of their needs, in terms of their spending patterns, in terms of their, their usage patterns, really could be enormous because there are some very, very distinct differences between how men and women are using the technology, both financially as, as well as you know, the other, other data uses.
0: Mary Ellen, this was a fascinating conversation and thanks so much for making it onto the show. We're going to certainly have to invite you back.
1: Oh, I'd love to do that. So thanks so much and stay safe, Chris.
0: With fewer savings, shallower networks, and less information, those living at the margins are always more vulnerable in times of crisis, especially women and women of color. Now, interestingly, FinTech can provide critical tools, empowering people with access to financial resources in ways impossible to imagine just a generation ago. But it's clear that with the COVID epidemic, even more imagination will be necessary to preserve hard-fought gains, and that a concerted policy response will be necessary to realize the goals of equality the industry has long espoused. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. FinTech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.